All right, thank you. Thanks very much, Jeff. Uh, really appreciate the chance to come down to uh, uh, to Lethbridge uh, here this evening, and then I get to drive back to Edmonton for 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, and then to meet with um, Confederation of Treaty Six Nations, and then come back here for an all candidates meeting tomorrow night. So it's I get to play ping pong on uh, on highway two. All right, too close. You know what I'm going to do instead? Oh, mind you, you're recording it. But if you're recording it here, I can just talk like this, right? Okay. In that case, I'm just going to I'm just going to talk like this. Can everyone hear me? Fine. I'll All right. Okay. We'll use the mic then. I don't usually use mics. Um, yeah, so it's going to be, but it, it's great. It's great to be down here, and I think the the, the one um, uh, one of the really uh, enjoyable parts about uh, running for this office, I don't know if Mr. Thacker would agree with it, with me or not from back in his day, but is is just getting out and meeting people, and uh, so whether it's been Medicine Hat last week or Lethbridge this week, it's been really it's been really enjoyable. What I wanted to do tonight was essentially offer you um, a few thoughts about this other election, uh, the other election that we're having on the, on the, on the 23rd. Uh, why run at all in a Senate nominee election? Why run, for a Senate, why run in a Senate election? Uh, and then I wanted to say a few things about a couple of the issues that really matter, that really matter to me uh, in, this, in, this, in this particular campaign. Um, and I have substantive interests that I'm going to talk about, but I'm also very much concerned about process and approaches to politics and the sort of approaches to politics that I see going on in the federal government in particular these days are ones that concern me a lot. And it's one reason why I'm really pleased to be able to run as an independent in this, in this, partic in this particular election. So I want to say a few things then about why... You know, why, why, run, why run in an election at all? And uh, for me, it comes in from two directions, I think. One is, uh, in addition to teaching at the, the U of A in Edmonton, uh, I also have edited now for the last couple of years the uh, Wildlands Advocate, which is the magazine that Alberta Wilderness Association puts out. Uh, and Lauren Fitch, who was, last, who was here last night, is a, has been a godsend for me and my job as editor because he's been uh, a very faithful contributor to the magazine o over the years. In October, the, we devoted the issue to the grading Ottawa as an environmental steward. Uh, so we looked at national parks, we looked at environmental assessments, we looked at species at risk. And uh, the conclusion of... Um, of all the uh, pieces that we that we um, that that we produced for the magazine, was that Ottawa's record in in those respects is sadly uh, is sadly lacking, is sadly insufficient, just isn't just isn't good enough. And for for me, it went a little bit further than that because I don't know how many of you in the room will remember the movie Network from the 1970s. But there's that wonderful, uh, maybe with quotation marks around it, but there's that wonderful part in the film when Howard Beale, the network anchor who's being blamed for plunging ratings at the network news, uh, is given his chance, he's being fired. Uh, he's giving his chance to say his farewell speech to his audience. And instead of bowing out graciously, 
um, Howard uh, goes on a rant, uh, and it's essentially, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Uh, and so that was the editorial I wrote back in October in the AWA magazine, because Arlene Kwasniak, a law prof at the University of Calgary, had done a piece for us two years ago about environmental assessment in Canada, had talked about the cuts to the process. What does she say two years later? There are even more cuts than there were previously. And I'll talk about cuts to environmental assessment in, 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 a, in a few moments. But it was that, it was that, it, that sort of started the ball rolling for me. Uh, because I do think that in this province and in Canada more generally, I do think nature is an important part of what our identity is. Um, I think back to when I came to Alberta in the late 1980s when our family moved here from BC. Uh, some of our best memories are memories of going out into the foothills, whether it's to watch dad try to fly fish in the Livingston or the old man, um, whether it's camping along the Red Deer River. I mean, those are important parts of, of, of our family's memories of what's important to be an Albertan. Uh, and I don't think that our governments are doing enough when it comes to strengthening and respecting that part of our identity. So I'm starting to get mad in, 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 in last October. And I think this ties in, though, with so there's a substantive reason for this, and it concerns, you know, I care about the environment and I would like to see a better job being done. There's also, though, a process, or um, I'm not sure that's the right word for it, but it, it led to something else in February when, the, when Parks Canada approved the Glacier Discovery Walk in Jasper National Park. And this is not a project that is going to mean the end of Jasper National Park by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, what they're proposing is, is sort of a, um, is a, um, a walk along a viewpoint then with a spectacular glass um, floor that you can look down into some, into some Wapta Canyon. Uh, it's modeled after one that's been uh, constructed in the Grand Canyon in, in, in the United States. Not, like I said, the, the project itself in terms of it, its substantive impact uh, is, it's, isn't going to be the end of Jasper National Park, but it's the process. It's the process by which Ottawa reached its conclusion that really irritates me. And it's the language that politicians use to, I think, frankly, mislead us about what's going on that really frustrates me and really angered me in this particular situation. So, so the example I was using, and I participated in the environmental assessment. I sent information into Parks Canada about what I thought was deficient in terms of the environmental assessment, that the social science data that Brewster used to try to justify the project was, was bad. I mean, it was terrible social science. In fact, in in either Professor Jansen's classes or my classes, this would be cause for failure in terms of in terms of the paper. And we talked about it over 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 dinner tonight. But it was it was how that was all represented by the minister in Ottawa when he announced the approval of the process. He talked about a robust and inclusive public participation process. Frankly, I think that's rubbish. I mean, I don't think that was that that's an accurate characterization of the process at all. Um, the 
the, the chairman or the president of Brewster Canada got up and talked about his the, the numerous opportunities or the numerous open houses, pardon me, that they held to talk about this project with the public. Again, that's not what the record says. But the problem was there was nobody in the audience to challenge that. There was no one in the audience to say, you know, I was part of that EA process. There was no journalist in the audience to say, I've read the environmental assessment. How can you say there were numerous open houses when you held them on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, and a Thursday in four separate locations over, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? How can you talk about numerous open houses in that sense? And so it, it's, it's, you know, that again sort of poured fuel on this little fire that's burning in me about being mad as hell and not wanting to take this and not wanting to take this anymore. Um, and I do think, you know, and I do think in this respect that there's, that there's a constituency out there, uh, and I hope you're part of it, that calls themselves progressive conservatives, calls themselves liberal, calls themselves, my God, maybe even New Democrat, who think that things like landscape matter to our identity and can come to some sort of agreement and, and consensus that this is something worth protecting, that it isn't a partisan idea, that this is something that just Albertans who care about this place should care about or do care about. So for me, the sort of notion of why running in an, why running in an election period for me, it goes back to these sorts of two concerns I have. One, one about the substance of what government was doing, but also how they're selling it to us. And the sort of language and the misinformation that, that, that's, that's, that's associated with it. Uh, and I do think that what's happened, and uh, certainly since the days when I was a researcher back in the House of Commons, I worked, coincidentally, um, uh, I worked across the hall from Boyne Thacker, in the House of Commons back in 1979 and 80. Uh, Blaine, you know, they, you had a bit more hair on your head then, but not a lot as I recall. It was red then, as I recall. Um, uh, worked there for, and, and a good friend of mine, Dave Robin, was his, was his research assistant. I worked across the hall for Stan Graham, who was a progressive conservative MP from the East Kootenays. Um, and the atmosphere in the House of Commons, I think, was very different then than it is now. And the, I think now, and I, the, the Lethbridge Herald published a piece I wrote uh, back on March the 28th uh, about normal politics as being a politics that tries to reach consensus on issues and tries to compromise, this being sort of an essence of what really good normal politics should be like. And I think we're miles and miles and miles and miles away from that these days. And that partisanship has become excessive, it's become hyper-partisanship, and as a consequence, uh, if Professor Jansen is a conservative and he's got an idea and I'm a liberal and I have an idea, I can't, I'm not even going to consider what Harold's idea is because he's a conservative. By definition, he can't have a good idea. Uh, and he's probably looking at me the same way and saying, that damn liberal at that table, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not going to trust anything that comes out of his mouth because he's a liberal. And I think that's what we're getting in spades in Ottawa these days, is that sort of outlook towards, towards, towards politics. And so for me, I'm mad about that. I'm, I'm upset with that. Um, I, want to, I want to go to Ottawa as an independent where I can judge people 
by the ideas that they speak as opposed to the labels that they wear. And that's an important part of why I've been, why I've been doing this. Um, and I do think, why the Senate? Um, the, the Senate, uh, Ned Franks was a professor at Queens, uh, grad chair at Queens when I went there uh, a lifetime ago, um, has written about the imaginary Senate and the actual Senate. <clears throat> and the imaginary Senate is the one that comes most readily to my mind. I don't know about yours, but it's the one that comes most readily to my mind. And this is an imaginary Senate where senators essentially do no work at all. Uh, this is an imaginary Senate where most of the senators are probably like that fellow who lived most of the year in Mexico and never even went to the Senate. We never even went, attended any sessions at the Senate. Um, and it's only old party hacks who sit in the Senate. Okay? So, and for Franks, that's the imaginary Senate. Now, there are grains of truth in it, to be sure. But he writes about the actual Senate, and it's a body that does very important legislative work. It's a body that does very important work in its committees, and it's an invest in its investigatory capacities. Okay. So Franks talks about a whole list of legislation, sexual orientation in the Human Rights Act, drug policy, witness protection, as being examples of where the Senate did important work to improve what the House of Commons had done. What, what I ran into, I, I was teaching a constitutional law and politics class this term, and ran into another great example of that. Kent Roach at the University of Toronto was studying the review of anti-terrorism legislation, the parliamentary review of anti-terrorism legislation in Canada. Roach concluded that the Senate committee did a far better job in protecting the legitimate concerns that unpopular minorities had than the House of Commons committee did. Why? because of excessive partisanship on the part of the House of Commons. So the Senate for me is, a, is I mean, it's an important legislative institution. Uh, it does important work. Um, and maybe for sort of a policy wonk or a policy geek like me, that's a good place to go because you're interested in law, you're interested in legislation, those sorts of, those, those, those sorts of, those sorts of subjects. And it also has tended to be, in its committee work anyways, more nonpartisan than the House of Commons has been. So I've heard accounts of committee of Senate committees work where it really is a much more collaborative forum than what we're getting in the House of Commons these days. So that you know, so if if I if I want to walk the, the you know sort of if I'm concerned about partisanship, then for me it's it's a good fit. I mean, it, it's a type of institution where I think I could do a good job. Uh, in, in, in helping with amending legislation, and it's also a, a less partisan institution. I have to say, though, I'm concerned by the, some of the recent steps that the Harper government has taken with respect to the Senate that I think are making it a more partisan institution than it otherwise has been. And the example I would use is that is this notion, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, the notion of the... Um, uh, the, the Senate is actually has an inquiry going on right now about um, the foreign funding of charities in Canada. Now, I said the foreign funding of charities in Canada. That's not really what it's about. It's the foreign funding of charities who do environmental work in Canada is what the inquiry is really about. We're not interested in the foreign funding of other charities. We're not interested in the foreign funding of other groups in Canada. We're interested in the foreign funding of environmental charities that are making noises about issues like Northern Gateway, about that particular pipeline. 
and the uh, you should. Uh, we all have busy lives, and I, I don't expect anyone is going to run out of here and want to read a Senate debate at the end at the end of the evening. But if you were that sort of person, uh, you should actually go and read some of the debate about this particular piece of legislation. And the uh, I'll, I just wanted to read you an excerpt from it. And this actually comes from and this is a senator who, to my mind, like Elaine McCoy from Calgary, um, is, approaches her job in a nonpartisan way. And so this is a, this is a this is a rebuttal that a conservative senator, party is important here, a conservative senator made to claims that were being made by uh, Senator Nicole Eaton, who's sponsoring the inquiry. And to be blunt, she's essentially saying that anyone who opposes Gateway is un-Canadian. Uh, anyone who opposes it is un-Canadian because they're attacking Canadian families who need jobs and who we need economic growth. Okay, so th that, I think I'm doing pretty good justice to, to her position. So this is what a conservative senator had to say. So two conservatives on this. And this, I think, is the nonpartisan voice coming out of the House, coming out of the Senate. So it's Senator Nancy Ruth, who in an email to me said, uh, uh, thank you for your kind words. I couldn't believe the vitriol and accusations from my colleagues. I just had to speak some truth. And this is what Senator Ruth had to say. In closing, I want to reinforce the importance of holding fair, inclusive, and transparent hearings on the Northern Gateway Pipeline. Continuing to argue that the review process is radicalized, hijacked, and stacked may be a preemptive strike, but it is worth reflecting on what is being damaged in the process. And in this last remark, she's getting to me to what's really important about well-functioning parliamentary institutions. So she goes on to say, what is really being advocated by senators like Nicole Eaton is that some groups should have influence and others should not. What is really being advocated is that some points of view cannot be questioned while others are a waste of time and cause delay. And I think there's real truth in what the senator had to say on that score. And I think she's speaking up for how our parliamentary institutions should operate. They should be venues, they should be opportunities for citizens to become involved in issues they care about and speak out about those issues, whether they agree with the government, whether they toe the party line or not. And so for me, one of the issues with the Senate is again the sort of notion that in my mind anyways, it, it's uh, that the, the Harper government, um, that the Prime Minister has certain uh, tendencies um, that I think, strained towards wanting to control everything. And uh, I think that's what we're going to see more of in even institutions like the Senate that concerns me. All right. Um, the, the, uh, I, I want to say uh, maybe just one or two comments about substantive issues that have sort of brought me here, or things I stand for anyways uh, on this. And... Um, in, if you go to, if, uh, I have some cards here that, that have information about where our website is, so you can go and see some of the things that, that, we're, uh, that we're talking about, I'm talking about, we're talking about there. Um, but there, there, there are two things I wanted to highlight, and, and one is not something we, we really talk about a lot, but it, it's the controversy now over environmental assessments in Canada. And the, uh, and the, reform, the reform measures that are being proposed by the government uh, to modernize and streamline the regulatory process. 
Now, in the language I just used there, how could anyone possibly be opposed to this? Um, we're uh, talking about reform. We're interested in modernizing and streamlining. I mean, those are all ideas that I think have really positive connotations associated with them in many people's minds. Is that really what's taking place? Is, I think, the key question, and the key question here. And I would argue, no, that isn't what's taking place at all. It goes back to my point about language that politicians are using to try to sell us a bill of goods. And I think they're trying to, you know, I think they, they, want, us, they want us to get to the conclusions that they want us to reach. And so they'll use language in ways to try to take us there. And I suppose always have. But I think it's really apparent now. And I think it's really dramatic now. I, and I'll give you another. It's, it's appropriate that, I mean, it's great that the next talk here is going to be on the Omnibus Crime Bill. But that's not its real name. Its real name is the Safe Streets and Communities Act. Well, who's, who's going to argue against safe streets and safe communities? I mean, I'm not going to. Uh, I mean, who in their right mind would do that? And again, it, it, it's, a way in which, it's a way in which politicians, for, in my view, partisan ends, play with language in ways to try to delegitimize opposition that's really legitimate. That's really legitimate. Senator McCoy is a good example of that. I mean, she ended up voting against the omnibus crime bill in the Senate. And she did so in the following language. That, look, there are many parts of the bill I, I agree with, but I don't agree with all of it. And I think we should separate, we should take it step by step. We shouldn't put it all in one package and try to get everything through. So I think she had concerns about min mandatory minimum sentences. I think she wanted to leave that discretion in the hands of, just, of, of judges. I think she had concerns about some of the drug policy aspects that, that, that are in there. So anyways, I, I, I may be going on a, a little bit about this, but the, the, the environmental assessment process is, is the one that I really wanted to, to just say a few words about. And because it, it does tie in with this notion of how I think that what's taking place in Ottawa is a process by which language is being used in an excessively partisan way, in a way that essentially misleads us. Um, there's another aspect of the environmental assessment issue that I think is, is, is important to underline, and, and no one I think has really picked up on this yet. Uh, and it's the notion that by definition, uh, delay is bad. Uh, the, the big complaint that the Harper administration has had about the environmental assessment process is it takes too damn long. You know, the, the gateway could go on for 18 months. I mean, that's just too long. You know, we want this pipeline approved, built, let's get on with it. Now, there's, a, there's an assumption about built into, I think, the, the notion that delay by definition is wrong or harmful, and that is that business is infallible. Um, that business always reads the market correctly. And so if business decides that it's time to take this decision, it's got to be time to take this decision. I don't know if any of you here are unfortunate enough to own shares in RIM, um, but if you do, uh, you might wonder about the infallibility of people like Jim Vasily and, and the people who are running that particular company and their inability to read market conditions and changing market demands. The example I would use here, I mean, people could come back to me then and say, well, we're not talking about high tech. We're talking about resources. We're talking about oil and gas and that sort of stuff. Um, true, 
But then the best example to use to make my case is the Mackenzie Gas Project. I don't know if you remember it or not, but this was the project that's really started in about 2004 that was going to bring Mackenzie Gas down from the Arctic to, you know, at least as far as Alberta. And it was, I think, originally designed as another export pipeline to, to, the, to the U.S. Well, a couple of weeks ago now, the partners decided that they weren't going ahead with the project. Why? Because all the assumptions they made about where natural gas prices were going to be at this point in time in our lives turned out to be bogus. I mean, you know, they, they, it's hard to imagine. They, it's hard to imagine they could have missed it any more than they actually did. They didn't see things. They didn't see that natural gas prices right now would be sort of the lowest they've ever been. Uh, they didn't. They didn't anticipate that. So let's think back. So we could have we could have had a really quick regulatory process that gave the rubber stamp of approval to the Mackenzie Gas Project, and off and we're off and running with it. And if we did that, what we'd have right now would be a huge white elephant in the Arctic coming down for you know bringing gas that's not. And then what else would we have? We'd have companies going to Ottawa to say, <clears throat> how can you subsidize us in order so we don't go bankrupt on this venture? So my, my point in this is that when we talk about things like environmental assessments, the government it wants us to believe that the processes are by definition too long. And they won't allow for the possibility that there, sometimes delay is a good thing. And sometimes, and in this case, it has saved companies billions of dollars. And, you know, you don't have to take the word of a University of Alberta professor who teaches politics this. Read, read the Herald Business section. I mean, read the Calgary Herald business section, and that's the message that comes out of there. So one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about then uh, and making a point in my, in, in my platform, uh, the Urquhart Party, um, the Urquhart Party platform stresses the importance of open and inclusive regulatory processes, and public participation is something that we should value, not try to, not try to shut up and not try to, uh, not try to put under the carpet. The, the one other issue I want to talk about, and then I'm going to then I'm going to uh, be quiet and uh, and listen to what listen to what you have to have to say and and, and your comments and thoughts about uh, any or all of this, is um, economy and environment. And what I, what I want to stress here is I think that we've been again because of partisanship, and you know I'm mainly pointing my fingers at at the Harper government, admittedly, but too many parties are doing it. Um, the Liberals, for example, when Thomas Mulcair won the NDP leadership, um, uh, won the NDP leadership a few weeks ago now, so I went on CBC. I hadn't been following it as closely as I probably should have. I wanted to know what sort of policies Mulcair favored. What was he about? All I heard from Scott Bryson of the Liberals was that he was a nasty warrior. You know, oh my God, well, that sounds like, I don't think I really want to know anything more about Mr. Mulcair than that. If he's nasty, I mean, and he's a warrior, my goodness, I, I can't really, does he really have any ideas that I'd be interested in? Um, so one of the things I think that has been happening when we talk about economy and environment is that there's this notion that if you're in favor of the economy, especially in Alberta, you're by definition opposed to the environment and vice versa. I mean, someone who, someone like me who thinks landscapes are important and wants to protect some of them, 
uh, must by definition be uh, turn back the clock, no economic, economic growth is bad, we shouldn't have any of it. And I think that's just like, I think that's foolish. Uh, I think that's really simple-minded. Um, and I think it's time that we actually talk to people about creative ways of trying to have both worlds. Again, trying to come with some sort of compromise that gives us, for me, a healthy livelihood, which means people earn good livings, but they do so in healthy, natural environments as well. So the example I want to use here is one of renewables and petroleum. And I think, again, in a lot of the debate, renewables and petroleum sort of get, get uh, painted as opposites. You know, if, you, if you're in favor of renewables, you must be against oil and gas in Alberta. Um, and so what, I, what, I've, what I've tried to talk about in the platform is the idea that, you know, petroleum wealth is crucial to renewables. You know, that if, if, we, if you imagine a future in this province where renewables play any sort of role at all, that petroleum wealth could be an important catalyst to getting to that future. Okay? And I, I look at it this way. I think of our history and our future in three steps. Here we have the conventional oil economy. Okay? And so that's booming after Leduc in 1947. Everything's going great. Okay? Then in about 19, then in about you know mid-1970s, Peter Lahey comes along and, and creates the Alberta Oil Science Technology and Research Authority. And they start doing work into many of the processes that are crucial to this economy here, which is now the non-conventional oil economy, oil sands, tar sands, bitumen, I don't care what you call it, it's not conventional oil anymore. So, you know, th this economy that we're in right now. So, oil sands research here, oil sands economy here. Okay? Taking money from conventional oil industry here to finance oil sands research that we're benefiting from here. And I think that's a model that we should be taking with respect to renewables. The federal government is going to claim, according to the Canadian Energy Research Institute in Calgary, uh, roughly $187 billion between a year or so ago and 2035 in um, corporate and income taxes related to oil sands development in Alberta. And that's money going to Ottawa. Okay, it's, it's, it's not, the provincial government's not involved in that at all. And I think what Ottawa should do is take some of that money and create something like we did in the 1970s with oil sands. Create a, you know, um, create a, a renewable research and technology authority here in Alberta that would do research and development on emerging renewable technologies. And maybe we could also take some of that money and offer like, you know, um, crazy conservative states like Texas do. Um, maybe we could offer people personal tax credits to go out and purchase solar and wind power systems and install them on their personal properties. Texas does that. We don't. Um, you know, I, let, let's make ourselves like Texas North, not, in, not just in an oil and gas sense, and, and not in a handgun sense. I'm not advocating that we'd be allowed to carry concealed handguns in Canada, but in the sense of renewables and promoting renewables in this, you know, in, 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 in this province. And, you know, but we don't think that way because we're not, we're, we're, not, we're not encouraged to think that way. Instead, we're encouraged to think that, oh, my God, if Urquhart's talking about renewables, he wants to destroy petroleum. Not at all. I need that money. I mean, my vision needs the wealth from petroleum. 
in order to create renewables, that, that also, and this is the beauty of it too here, and I can't believe that I'm the only person to, to, to think that this makes sense, but the beauty of it is, what are we replacing if we do something like that? So what are renewables good for? Like this, lights, electricity. 45% of the electricity consumed in Alberta is produced by coal. If we want to get greenies off our backs when it comes to issues like greenhouse gas emissions, why don't we invest in renewables as a way of reducing the amount of electricity that's generated in this province from coal? Again, this isn't an attack on the petroleum industry at all. It's sort of saying, look, the electricity sector offers a great opportunity for us to move away from where we've been in the past. So. So it's one of the things I stress in terms of uh, in terms of what I would like uh, like to do if I get, if I get to go to Ottawa. I mean, these are these are the sorts of ideas that I would like to uh, talk about with with other people in the Senate and and also talk about and encourage people in the House of Commons to to to, to adapt. Because I don't think I, I don't think we're well served anymore by the sort of rhetoric which suggests you know it's either economy or environment and we can't have and, and we can't have both. I think there are really viable options out there. And unfortunately, to some degree, the existing state of party politics prevents people from advocating for those uh, for those ideas. So I, I see I've, I've taken you know five or ten minutes more than more than I more than I really wanted to. So I, I think I'll stop at that point and just invite any any questions, comments, concerns, uh, concerns uh, you have, and you know, thanks very much for coming out tonight and for uh, your attention. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. What we'll do is we'll just take a, a coffee break here, get stretch our legs, and then uh, we'll come back and. Uh...